Hello and welcome everyone to this online conversation hosted by the European Centre for International Political Economy on the economic and broader societal value of intellectual property, or IP, for the EU and its member states. My name is Jackie Davis and today I'm very pleased to welcome Natalie Mole to this conversation. Natalie is Director General of FPIA, the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations. The recent ESIP study on the benefits of intellectual property rights in EU free trade agreements shows that the pharmaceutical industry is the most IP intensive sector in the EU economy. So I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk to Natalie about the relevance and importance of intellectual property for an innovative pharmaceutical industry in particular and for healthcare in general. Natalie, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Um, Natalie, in another podcast for this series, I spoke to Luisa Santos of Business Europe and we talked about the EU's industrial strategy and its relationship to this whole issue of IP rights. But your sector has another strategy also to look at, the pharmaceutical strategy. How important are both of these strategies for the pharmaceutical sector and how do you see the connection between the two? Well, thank you very much, Jackie, and it's a pleasure to be here. It's also a pleasure to be working in this sector at this moment in time where, indeed, as you mentioned, the European Union has an industrial strategy, a very ambitious one, and at the same time, a pharmaceutical strategy that is supposed to fit into that, that includes also a review of all our legislation for the first time in 20 years. So it's true that we focus very much on the pharmaceutical strategy because it has the dual objectives of ensuring a strong competitive pharma industry as well as improving access to medicines in Europe. But we also look at the industrial strategy because, of course, it's looking and the trade strategy and the IP action plan because they're all looking at strengthening our industry in Europe. And as we've seen during COVID-19 and even now during the, the terrible war that we are facing, it's very important for our industry to be resilient and to manage to continue to produce uh, medicines and to make sure patients uh, receive them wherever they may be. So if I look, for example, at the pharmaceutical strategy that is supposed to sit under a little bit, the industrial strategy, there are some really good elements in there. There's a focus on unmet medical needs such as antimicrobial resistance or AMR as it's known, and some proposals to uh, improve the development of antibiotics with push and pull incentives. At the same time, rather surprisingly, there are some proposals in the pharma strategy to reduce IP and erode intellectual property mm -hmm. or even connect incentives to market launches, which generally happen about 15 years after you've invested uh, in, in IP or transparency of R&D costs with, with an objective of increasing access to medicine. So at the moment, when we look at it, we can see the dual objectives but it seems that we mix those objectives together when we try and give policy solutions. And uh, while we completely want to increase access, and we have even some proposals that I'd love to share with you in a little bit on how to do that, we don't think that weakening intellectual property and weakening the attractiveness of our region for investors is the solution, mm. quite the contrary. But, but Natalie, do those two things have to be uh, mutually exclusive, i.e. the strong competitive industry and improving access? Um, can they be achieved at the same time? Is there a way of doing it or, or is there a tension between the two? 
No, on the contrary, I think they're completely complementary. And the good thing is we all have the same objective, which is wonderful and quite rare. Um, so we all want a strong, innovative pharma industry that comes with the latest treatments and really finds, in some cases, even cures for patients. And we also want to make sure that those cures and treatments reach patients. So they're the same, the same part of the 15-year life cycle of a medicine. And what it's just that at different moments of that life cycle, you need different things. So at the very beginning, you need investments because it takes 15 years to produce a medicine. And the odds of getting it right are about 10,000 to one. So that's quite a big, a big uh, set of odds. And to encourage investors to invest in that kind of, um, in those kind of odds, you really need to make sure you have a very attractive investment package. And that includes very strong and predictable IP, which we've always had in Europe. In the last 25 years, we're seeing that our attractiveness is reducing, not only lagging behind the US, as you might expect, but even, even China. So we really need to make sure that at this moment, when we are revising our legislation because of the technological advances, we make sure that that investment uh, attractiveness is still there. So that's one end, the years, you know, the first years. Then if you look at access, the, the reasons that, and availability, if you like, of medicines in our 27 member states, the, we've studied a lot the reasons why there are differences in access, why in one country it takes longer than another, why in one region sometimes it takes longer than another. And we found about 10 reasons. None of them have to do with IP or investments, if you like. They all have to do uh, with, uh, well, they're all multi multifactorial. Some are, are responsibilities of industries, some of member states, pricing, reimbursement, regulatory, whatever. And what we have done as an industry, Jackie, is say, okay, we see there's an issue here. Our medicines are not reaching all the patients who have to have access to them. What can we do? And what we've done is actually come forward with a commitment as an entire industry to file for pricing and reimbursement in all 27 member states, which is not necessarily the case today. And we want to do that in a time-limited period. So maximum two years from the authorization of the medicine, we want to have started pricing and reimbursement discussions in all But as I understand you, Natalie, therefore, you would say trying in any way uh, to reduce IP protection is not part of the answer to this problem. It's mixing two different issues uh, that should not be conflated. Yes, it would be. It would be uh, using the the wrong solution for, for the problem. It would not create more access. What you would do is reduce the amount of innovation. That's that's for certain. And we would become a net importer of innovation. We'd stagnate in terms of innovation. That would not do anything in terms of increasing access for patients. So we wouldn't solve the patient access issue. And we would definitely not... Uh, meet the requirements of making the industry competitiveness catching up with the other regions. So it's really concerning, if you like, to to, to look at that kind of solution for the for a different kind of problem. And and if there are solutions, and there are, because together with our commitment, we'd also like to have an online portal to make the commitment very visible, so people can follow the access of these products on the twenty seven markets. You know, there are really very tangible and predictable ways of improving access. Mm -hmm rather than tinkering with our the attractiveness of our environment, which is also um, created by the fact that we have a very strong intellectual property framework. So let's be let's be predictable, let's be effective, let's be let's work together to get access to patients faster 
But at the same time, or and at the same time, let's make sure that our region comes out of the review of the legislation and of the pharma strategy as a super attractive place to do research and development and manufacturing. Well, because it is quite striking, Natalie, because you said uh, early on in this conversation, you know, talking about that importance of strong and predictable IP, I mentioned at the start, you are the most IP intensive sector in the economy. And the ESIP study shows very much that this is a sector that's growing in importance all the time, uh, particularly in terms of trade. So quite striking that at a time when our attractiveness is declining, there is this question mark over whether uh, these IP rights will be maintained. Maybe come back on that towards the end. But I wanted to pick up on something else you talked about, because you talked about unmet medical needs. Can you explain a little bit more about this concept uh, and maybe give an example? I think you mentioned uh, uh, antimicrobial resistance, antibiotics uh, 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 as an area of an issue. Um, can you explain the link between this and this whole debate about IP rights? Yes, and when I joined this industry five years ago, I learned a lot of jargon among which unmet medical need, but this is maybe perhaps one of the easiest ones. So an unmet medical need is where a patient... Uh, doesn't have the treatments or the medicines needed to treat his or her disease, or they haven't been approved yet. So the job of our industry, if you like, is to address unmet medical need or reduce them as much as possible, right? This is what, that's our business uh, to, to solve those problems. Good examples are, as you mentioned, developing solutions to antimicrobial resistance, whether that be antibiotics or other solutions. Other areas very well known are rare diseases, those diseases that touch very few individuals and what we call orphan drugs. So the medicines to treat those rare diseases, these are all unmet medical needs. And one of the objectives of the pharma strategy and of the regulatory review is to make sure that everybody is looking as much as possible into unmet medical need and that we're putting all the elements in place to enable that research and to enable that development. And if you talk about antimicrobial resistance, antibiotics, there's a clear market failure because as a product, you're supposed to make it and then not use it until as a very last line of defense, right? So it's not a very good uh, business proposition. So we need to find other ways to incentivize the research and development into antibiotics or into solutions for antimicrobial resistance. And if you like, those are incentives, whether they're push incentives to increase the research or pull incentives to create a market attractiveness, I think it'll be a suite of um, solutions to uh, face that unmet medical need, if you like. And a suite of solutions that has to, in your view, include strong IP rights. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's still about research. It's still about investment. It's still about ensuring that investors feel that if they take that 10,000 to one chance, at the end of the day, they will be, you know, they will recover their investment. This is the way our industry, but most innovative industries work. It's just that ours have this, has this very long lag period between discovery and product, which is 15 years. I mean, that's enormous. If you think about most of the innovative products you use, whether it's a cell phone or anything else, nothing takes 15 years. Um, so it really is a very delicate ecosystem that has its rules. And IP is one of those important pillars at the very beginning that needs to stay along, if you like, the life cycle of the product to ensure we 
lock that investment down. And as you say, one of the important pillars, but also when we talk about IP protection, we're talking about many different types of protection uh, in the pharmaceutical sector as in others. One of them I just particularly wanted to pick up on uh, with you is regulatory data protection, or because uh, this sector loves its jargon, RDP. A type of IP that also is looked at in the eSight report, and the eSight report finds that its inclusion in EU trade agreements is weakening. Why does this type of IP matter so much? Uh, and is it true that this can delay access to new treatments? Going back to that point we were talking about earlier, how, how do we address this issue? Well, regulatory data protection, and the name the name says it all, is, is because our industry is very, very highly regulated, rightly so, to make sure that our products are safe and efficacious for patients. Uh, so it's about protecting the data that is um, submitted for the approval of a medicine. So to, approve, to obtain a marketing approval of a new medicine, a company has to hand over all its confidential regulatory data. So all the information about the tests, the clinical trials, etc., and if you like, to the regulator. And this makes the information public. It's a very transparent process and it, and it reassures everybody that everything is being done correctly. But if you have that data made transparent, um, you risk it being used straight away to copy the, 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 the research and produce something very similar. So regulatory data protection allows the owner of the data to avoid competition from other companies who have not spent anymore for the research to use and copy the, the data. It's limited in time and, uh, and it's very important. It's an important part of that IP framework that reassures investors that once the dossier has been submitted, the product will not suddenly be copied by somebody else and they'll never get a return on investment. So it's a different kind of IP. It runs in parallel with patent protection. It doesn't delay access to new medicines. In fact, the, the ACP study you were mentioning, as well as the IQVIA study of 2021, they both show that these stronger IP provisions lead to faster access because a strong IP framework attracts that investment and investments lead to innovative medicines that come in the EU. And why is that important? Because when you develop innovative medicines in the EU, you also do the clinical trials in the EU. And clinical trials for up to thousands of people mean that those patients get access even during the trial. So even before the product is approved, European patients involved in clinical trials already have access. So that's the, per the fastest possible access you can get, if you like. Just one final question, Natalie, uh, before uh, we uh, leave this conversation. I wanted to come back to something that Frederick Eriksson, director of eSight, said uh, in uh, the first podcast that we recorded for this series. And he described the way IP is treated in terms of, of trade agreements and so on. He said, as if it's like as if something the cat dragged in, i.e. very much the poor cousin and a feeling that this issue is just not getting the attention it deserves. And one of the things I've discussed with a number of our guests is why member states don't make this a priority when the commission is preparing the ground for trade agreements. What would you say to member states, um, particularly in the context of how important IP intensive sectors are for the European economy and their increasing importance? What would you say to convince them that this really is an issue uh, that in general terms, but then specifically also in our negotiation of free trade agreements, they really ought to be giving greater priority? Well, I would say that IP is part of the life of the product. If we want to have a strong industry in Europe, also for SMEs, 
IP is essential in order for them to attract investment. So if we want to do what we keep saying, which is having a flourishing SME community, but then that the SMEs grow into bigger companies, we need to ensure that they are able to trade in equal on, a, on an equal footage. And that means that also for SMEs, there needs to be an SME chapter in those free trade agreements and very strong IP elements that match the IP existing in the EU. Otherwise, we are all exposed, if you like, to, to different rules in different places. And I think it will weaken our ability to innovate globally and to be a leader, which going back to the beginning, the industrial strategy and the pharma strategy are both saying that they would like to boost the competitiveness of this industry. So link that to the trade strategy, link that to the FTA agreements and the preparations, and always ensure that innovation, including IP, are elements considered in those negotiations. These things all have to fit together. We also have an IP action plan at EU level. So as I said at the beginning, this is the best possible moment to be working on this because all the strategies and the initiatives are happening at the same time. So if we can't join them up together, I don't know now, I don't know when we will be able to. So I really would encourage us all to have an eye on everything and make sure that we are coherent and impactful now for uh, for the patients of today but also for those of tomorrow natalie and thank you and as you say best possible moment to be working on this so also the best possible moment to be discussing this with you thank you so much it's been a real pleasure talking to you over the next few months we'll be unpacking the findings of this esip study through a series of activities including events podcasts like this one and blogs that allow a range of experts to share their views. We're focusing on many exciting topics, including, among others, the European Green Deal, counterfeit products, the importance of IP for the EU's small and medium-sized enterprises, how IP can combat biodiversity loss, and why it is also vital for the EU's services sectors. We invite you to join the discussion on social media using the hashtag IP in EU FTAs, and to follow our trade and IP webpage at esipe.org for all future updates. Goodbye.